This episode is powered by DenMeditation.com, with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to DenMeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Live. I'm Tal Rabinowitz. I'm your host of Den Talks Podcast. And I'm sitting next to my friend and the legendary Sean Korn, who most of you know, but if you don't, she is a celebrated yoga teacher. You've been teaching for over 25 years. You've graced over 30 magazine covers, which is insane if you start doing the average of that. And what's the most impressive thing is she uses her platform and her influence to really actually make social change and influence others to do that as well, which we'll talk a lot about. In 2007, she started Off the Mat, Into the World, which is a non... <laughs> which is a, you're like, keep going, which is a nonprofit organization that bridges the gap between activism and yoga. They've raised over $3.5 million. She's such a badass for organizations that help countries make actual real change around the world. It's incredible. The Smithsonian Institute actually honored you as well, correct, for your continuing support of activism and yoga. I mean, she just, I love it. I feel so honored to be your friend. I feel so honored that you're here. Obviously, she walks in a room, you see the hair. We go to the same <laughs> hairstylist, by the way. You would never guess. <laughs> My hair takes two seconds to do her. She's there for like three hours. <laughs> Um, and her, your big smile and your deep and strong voice. But I think what comes in the room before you is just your sense of self and you always fight for what you believe in. We were talking about this earlier, not just for you, but also for the world and people around you. So I am truly honored that you are here. I feel like we are also lucky that we get this intimate environment, being in a meditation studio and be able to talk to her about anything we want. So... Just a reminder, please don't leave right away. We get to do some little snacks and drinks afterwards, and that's when we'll also do the Lululemon winner of the night, which will be great. And there's a Q&A at the end, so if you have any questions, just hold them till then. And for the listeners at home also, as well as here, she will do personal practice, which will be a like 10-minute chakra meditation, which is amazing for all of us. Thank you for being here. Paul, thank you so much. I, I, I'm shocked. Either you have an incredible memory or you <laughs> might be a stalker. So. <laughs> Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> I'm not sure if I should be You're so fun. Frightened. You were so fun to stalk, though, so it's all worth it. But I do want to start with the fact that we met, actually, on a trip to Israel. Um, and one of the things that first like I recognize about you right away is because we, we didn't talk right away. Like I think our first conversation was actually probably halfway through the trip, like a real conversation. But no matter where you were, if you were talking or not talking, it was clear who you were. Like, it was clear right away. You walk in the room, I'm like, oh, she knows who she is. She knows what she wants. She has conviction. She is strong in a great way. Now, were you always like that? Is that something like, as a like were you a really strong child, or is this something that, like, developed throughout the years? And again, we're both from Jersey also, so I'm sure that'll come into play. Ah, more Jersey people in the audience. Where in Jersey are you from? Right outside of Jersey. Oh, Jersey, are you? I, um, I'm from Northern Jersey, Bergen County, but I did go to a, an obnoxious prep school near you, so we can talk. Yeah, Lawrenceville. <laughs> Lawrenceville, yeah. But we digress. Yes, we digress. <laughs> answer, answer to that question would be that if I had to describe myself as a child, it would be with like legs spread, hands on the hips, mouth open, pissed, aggressive, assertive, um, loud, and direct. And then somewhere along the line kind of lost that 
And I sometimes I experience myself as an adult now, like that eight-year-old. Like there's a, something familiar in certain things that I do. I'm like, oh, I remember that. So yes, I think I was born that way, lost it, and then found when it. When did you lose it? I think starting probably when I moved to New York City at 17, and the world just some, suddenly got big, and I wasn't nearly as cool and as smart and as hip and as bold as I thought, and I knew nothing and was very overwhelmed and got really insecure and doubtful. Now I faked it, you know? No one would know from the outside that I was in terror on the inside, but I was, and shrunk a little bit. Now, was, were those totally foreign feelings for you? Like, because you were saying you're with this kid. Did you ever feel those feelings as a kid, or yes. was this totally, you didn't? Oh, absolutely, I would have to say. But it was, but I still was in a sheltered environment where other aspects of my personality were welcome. There was no way I was going to get rejected for being bold. Yet when you grow up, there's consequence to speaking up and taking a stand. And I believe that I started to experience those consequences without feeling a lot of support. And so... I think just naturally so withdraw. Can, can you tell me about one of those? Like, do you feel like there were moments, like, did you just kind of go to New York, like, I'm the girl in the city, and I'm going to conquer all, and then you just kind of got... No. I mean, a little bit, I guess. I moved to the city because, I, like I said, I was young. I was only 17 when I moved to the city. Um, I got a 760 on my SATs, and I think that anyone... You get 400 for writing your name. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, uh, I did not do well in school. Um, I, I just learned differently. I know that now. I learned differently than other students did, and I was more right-brained. But my environment wasn't um, conducive for someone like me. And so I did not do well on my SATs, could not get into college if I wanted to. And there was that moment of knowing that I was going to have to stay home and get a job and maybe, you know, become, you know, go to makeup school or... or Something like that. Not that anything's wrong with that, but I just knew that it was going to be like something to do with trade. And odds were, my boyfriend at the time in high school, he was four years older, chomping at the bit. He was waiting for me to graduate high school so that we could get married and have children and get on with our lives. And there was something unimaginably terrifying about what was the reality that I was faced with. And I just wanted out. And I was working at this um, Krauser's convenience store. And which was kind of like a 7 you remember Krauser's? Yeah. yeah. Like a 7-Eleven, but like a much more kind of small time. There was no computers or anything. And so I was running a racket at the register. If you bought a carton of milk for, you know, $1.80, I would just ring up $1.50 maybe, you know, or a dollar and pocket the rest. <laughs> and, and They're coming after her after this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Krauser's. <laughs> Years ago, they wrote me because they owed me back. They owed me taxes. And I'm like, no, like we're good. <laughs> yeah, we're square. Yeah. But I was stealing the money to be able to get the rent that I was going to need because I just wanted to get out of New Jersey and move to New York City. And I knew I was going to need first and last month's rent. And my parents weren't going to give me any money. They didn't have the money to give. Um, and so I basically stole my way to New York City. And how uh, long did that take you? Thirty cents at a time. I, well, I, I wouldn't say it 30 cents at a time. Uh, didn't take very long. It was two summers worth. But it was two summers worth. I'm not, you know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't good. But, uh, but it got me to the city. And, um, and once in the city, you know, I, you're, I'm 17. There are no parameters. There's no guidance. It was 
so remarkable and big. And suddenly there were people who felt like me and talked like me and who were curious. I was very, very curious. I, I always considered myself what's uh, like a cosmic voyeur. I wanted to know everything and nothing disgusted me or grossed me out or freaked me out. I didn't participate. I was conservative that way, but I always watched and um, except for drugs. Drugs I was all in and I started doing drugs What young. was your favorite? Oh God, uh, mescaline. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, mescaline. In, in Jersey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, just so the audience knows, Jersey girl's laughing, so yeah, she clearly. And, and Jess over there also, Jersey. She knows. She knows. Um, you know, I, I started, I, I smoked my first cigarette at eight, started smoking pot and drinking alcohol at 12, did mescaline for the first time at around 14, Coke at 14, LSD at 15. It was, it didn't seem like such a big deal at all. It was just very normalized in the environment that I grew up in. And, but because it cost money, I had no money, so it was, I got it here and there, you know. But in New York, it was Everywhere. easy. And it became, it was problematic because I had so much access and I worked in nightclubs and it was fairly, um, it, it was really accessible to me. And, but where I was personally really, really blessed was that all this access, all this shadow stuff that I was so open to and curious about and available to, simultaneously I was also, <clears throat> excuse me, thrust into environments where I was, where seeds were being planted around yoga and wellness and meditation, like at the exact same time. So I had this one world here and then all this information coming at me, um, kind of like, you know, indirectly that forced me early on to make decisions that I think now probably saved my life. And it includes, included stop stealing. It, <laughs> it included also um, not drinking or doing drugs, including smoking and making choices that were actually forced me to have to look to the reasons why I was comfortable drinking and smoking and doing drugs. And that was a really important transition. So that's how I got to New York. And it was all like, I look back now, and it was very divine. But it was my personality that was like, we're going. Because I saw that the um, alternative was not something that I was available to. So how old were you then when you like stopped drinking? And stuff? Like, how old, like what was that transition? The, the trajectory, I got into yoga around 19. Um, and, you know, it didn't happen all at once. You know, I remember doing yoga and literally coming down the stairs with a butt hanging out of my mouth <laughs> with a lighter in my hand, just waiting to get out that door. But I also remember sitting in New Jersey. I was, I was visiting my parents, and I was um, uh, sitting on the curb waiting for the 197 and taking it back to the city. And I lit a butt, and I inhaled, and it just went down funny. And, like, I kind of coughed. I thought maybe it just tasted bad, and I smelled the pack thinking it was stale. And I remember flicking the butt. And without any ceremony at all, I knew I would never smoke another cigarette again. Tossed the pack in the cigarette, the package of cigarettes into the garbage, and that was it. And it felt like drugs, drinking, everything like that for me. Since I am not an addict, that wasn't something within my chemistry. I use drugs and alcohol for recreation and also to mask, to mask some of the emotional stressors that I was experiencing as a way to avoid my big feelings. Um, but it wasn't because... I was addicted. Now, I gave it my best shot, but it, <laughs> it wasn't in my chemistry. And so because of the introduction to these practices early on, I would say that I stopped 
doing um, everything like that by the time I was 21. And it was all, was it all very like subconscious for you? Like you said, it just was a taste yeah. versus like you being like, you know, the yoga community tells me I shouldn't no. do X, Y, and Z, so I'm not going to do it. No, I'm actually at 52, I'm bitter and angry. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I ended all of that at around 21 years old. Like, I had more years. Like, <laughs> truly, truly. You had, like, like nine more years. Completely. <laughs> like, I feel like if I decide just to, like, run wild, like, have, like, a good year of really inappropriate behavior, I've earned it. And For I'm sure. hoping that everyone would forgive me and just, like, you know what? She's, she, let, just let her have fun. Let her do her thing. But it just kind of worked out that way. For, again, it's the grace of God because... Everyone that I know at that time were seriously um, harming themselves through drugs and alcohol and moving in a trajectory, which I know many of them are still struggling with today because they didn't have the guidance that I had that helped just kind of push me on a path that I didn't even know I was open to. You know, I didn't believe in God. I didn't give a flying shit, quite frankly. That opened to me, just like the quitting and the ending, all that, the evolution into a spiritual practice also evolved in that way. So in that sense, because I love that you just say you didn't believe in God, because you do some of the most beautiful and insane prayers that I've ever heard. That was also that first day on the Israel trip. Mm -hmm. We were with Marianne Williamson. I don't know if you remember this. And she was like talking and she's like, and Tal, you'll, you'll close this out with a meditation. And I was like, no, no, no. No, 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 it's not happening. And finally she looked at me, she's like, fine, Sean, do a prayer. And you're like, ah, and like the most, and in one second, the most intense and incredible prayer came out. I'm like, well, I'm glad I said no. Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to you, like, mic drop, exactly. So, but in that, like you were obviously so connected. I mean, that's what, who you are now. But in going back then as someone who you say, did you never like really looking back, like were you ever the kid that was talking to something, even yeah. if you didn't realize what it was? Yeah. When I look back at it now, I know that I was highly intuitive uh, when I came into the world, super sensitive, had a sense of magic at a very, very early age. I wasn't raised with any religion, though. My parents were really, um, my mother was, uh, uh, came from a very rigid, very oppressive Jewish household. My father was half Catholic, half Jewish. And when they fell in love, were not allowed to be together because my father wasn't fully Jewish. So my mother deliberately got pregnant, or they chose to get pregnant, so they would have to be together. And my father's mother, uh, my grandmother, um, offered my father a Cadillac, if he can convince my mother to abort. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Which, when we were young, my father used to say that he should have taken the friggin' car. <laughs> and, uh, but because my parents, there was so much resistance about my parents being together in the name of religion, my parents were just like, no, we're not doing this. We celebrated every holiday that gave a gift. We put a Jewish star on top of the Christmas tree. And my family identified as being agnostic, meaning just not knowing, not really caring. And my parents, my dad would say that if anyone cared to ask, uh, or if when I asked him, like, well, then wh what is this, you know? And he said, if there is a God, it's, it's, it's kind, it's loving, it's compassionate, you know, you're all good. <laughs> yeah. But because we, there was no discipline around this, I grew up also, you know, I'm sure maybe you did as well, you know, it was, I grew up in a very Christian Catholic town with a small inkling of Jewish people. And there was a lot of rhetoric in my school and in my environment that was God-fearing, that God was punishing, and that if you messed up, you, 
it, you were somehow something bad would happen. Um, that terrified me. Even though it wasn't in my family, that wasn't what was indoctrinated. My environment really planted these seeds. And so I had this heavy conflict that, that God judged. And especially if you were naughty, and I was always naughty. Like, <laughs> that was just who I was. So I made the decision around 16 years old that I was an atheist and that I wouldn't believe in God. If God was going to be a cruel um, God, then what was the point? So when I moved to New York City, I was very committed to my atheism. Um, Especially at that age. That age, yeah. And it wasn't until I moved, like, again, a string of events that, that happened that forced me to have to experience, uh, see spirituality through a different lens and reclaim a relationship with God, not as something that's patriarchal or certainly not judgmental, but something that exists within all souls and that is nothing but truth and love. And that doesn't exclude the naughty. It doesn't exclude the shadow. Um, it's integrated. And that every moment, every experience is helping our soul to mature. So our ego might see it as something as bad, flawed, or wrong. Um, but the soul is like, yeah, bring it on. Because it's, <laughs> it's the only thing that's going to help us to awaken to the depth of our own true nature. And so certain experiences in New York City opened my eyes to help me reframe God and embrace a spiritual practice that was not dogmatic. What was the first time in New York that you all of a sudden saw your, look at that smile, <laughs> she's like, oh fuck, you asked me that question. <laughs> but what was the first moment for you that you all of a sudden were like, God, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is a, a well-worn story, so I'm not going to tell the whole story. Um, but basically, the first time I was introduced to God was in an all-male gay sex club in New York City called Heaven in an old church um, called Limelight. Limelight, you know, of Limelight? course. Yeah. Well, Heaven was in the <laughs> rectory of um, this church, and I worked there as a bartender. And uh, there was a man by the name of Billy who um, helped me to understand uh, God and help me to understand uh, how to accept all souls on their path to their own awakening, and that if I was, that the judgment would only be in me, and the judgment that I had in myself was going to keep me separated from each soul and from the planet and from my highest principle. And Billy had told me to ignore the story and see the soul, and remember to love, you'll never regret it. And that became really my my mantra in my youth that everyone has a story, but everyone is also doing the best they can with what they know based on their trauma and the lack of tools that they have. And that everyone, regardless of whatever that story, that narrative is, they've got karma to burn and lessons to learn. And all of it is meant, designed to awaken us to love. And the rate in which that happened was between each soul and the God of their own understanding. And it was the first time now, of course, I wouldn't have had that kind of a sophisticated understanding at, you know, 18 or however old I was. But I got the gist of it that um, no matter what, whether it was the drunk on the street or, you know, uh, the richest person in the world, that uh, everyone was doing the work in their own time that was going to move them towards their own illumination. And that my job was to ignore um, meaning don't define someone by their narrative. Instead, see the soul. And the only way I can do that is by ignoring the narrative within myself and seeing the soul within me and always remembering to put love first because that's God. And so that was my first introduction. 
Do you remember a moment where you actually did that philosophy for the first time and you're like, you noticed a difference in how you either engage with someone or reacted to someone or treated someone? Um, maybe. I mean, I, I'd like to, I don't practice that now 100%. It's impossible. It's that would be enlightenment and that's hardly the case. I think the rate in which I um, remember to see the soul gets shorter and shorter. Whereas in the past, I, my ego and my judgment and my own limited beliefs would cause me to still be in judgment. And eventually, I might come around and force myself to see the soul. Now I might just have a moment of like, oh, asshole. And then like, <laughs> oh, no, asshole, pointing the finger at myself, and see that bigger picture a little quicker. And so the earlier moments, I don't think I would have come to that kind of reconciliation until later in my practice as I really understood what Billy was telling me. I, I could hear it, but I, there's no way I would have been mature enough to embody it. That would take more years on the mat um, to understand that Billy and many of the people at my experience in New York early on were incredible divine teachers, yoga teachers, just not on the mat, not in the shala, not in the studios. They were in sex clubs, they were in bars, they were on the streets, and those were my teachers. I look back now and be like, and think, my God, was I lucky. Just the, the, the weird, mystical experiences that I had that for someone else would be utterly ordinary, but I can see now that there, were nothing, there was nothing ordinary about the people who showed up on my path who planted these little seeds and just said, pay attention. And in the meantime, just fumble away at life you know, enjoyed this weird little ride. You'll get it. And But you, know, you did pay that. attention because some people, like, don't, do you feel like everyone has these divine moments yeah. and it's just a matter of if you actually in yeah. follow it or not? Pay attention. Yeah, there's another way I could tell these stories. I, you know, to someone else hearing about learning about God in an all-male gay sex club called Heaven <laughs> in a church, they would immediately have a different perspective. And I could tell the story with an air of apology or embarrassment or even shame. And whereas I think, and, and maybe it was because I was raised in a way that was a little bit more open-minded. I even at that moment in my youth, I'm like, this is cool. This, this, isn't, this isn't bad, this is a gift. I think this might be special, maybe. Um, whereas someone else could think like, no, these people are flawed and dangerous and dark and dirty. Um, I think it's all about the individual perspective. And to me, that's what the yoga practice is all about. It's like we're being invited to change our perspective. We can't change our experience. That's life. Life just happens. But we can change the way we experience our life, and that's grace. And the environment that I, I was raised in, not my home environment, but New York City, helped me, how to shift, helped me to shift my perception so that I could see and value the magic even in the mundane, the beauty, even what might be perceived as grotesque. And I still try to live my life like that. You said something earlier when you were talking about, you know, the non-judgment and knowing that everyone is in a relationship with God in their own right, in their own time of their own path. So what do you think dictates the time? I don't know. Like, I don't know. It could take someone lifetimes. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think it's my business is to stay on my side of the street and just do my work <laughs> and just take advantage of these tools. 
um, I, like I know that like what we're doing right now and having these conversations, this is all very, very privileged. There's, uh, there's a spiritual democracy that we have that allows us to say thing, to say like, well, what is truth? What is God? What is love? To whom will I serve? Because of oppression, systemic, religious, uh, political oppression, most people in the world would literally be jailed or even killed doing what we're doing right now. And so I don't take for granted those privileges. For me, even though the work is really messy and it's really hard and denial and dissociation is so much easier than accountability, which the spiritual practice ultimately demands, there's a little voice in my head that says, how dare I um, allow my limited beliefs or my discomfort to prevent me from taking advantage of the tools that we have access to, to do this deeper work, to unpack all of these limited beliefs, our biases, our prejudices, um, all of the ways in which we separate when we can, and for some of us, because we have no choice, lives are at stake. Um, so for me, it's like, I don't know what someone else's journey or their path is. Um, I know that I'm gonna do my work over here and try to do my best to provide these tools in a non-judgmental way so that people can have access to them so that they can do their work if that's what they're called to do at this time. And so how it looks, so clearly you moved to New York, you have a mind of your own, you're making decisions, like you said, other people in their 20s might not have made. You've always, like we started this, have always known who you are, even if you had to shape it and find it. How, and even like, look, we both have untraditional families. <laughs> you know, I say like that because what does that even mean? But in the grand sense, and you've, do you feel like you've walked up against judgments or it's been hard for you to make certain choices, whether it be about getting married, not getting married, children, not having children? Um, or was it always easy for you because you always knew exactly what was right for you? Well, I, I always kind of knew exactly what was right for me, but I definitely walked up against it. You know, I knew I never wanted to be married. I also knew I didn't want to have children. It was really evident to me very early on. You know, when my friends would, I didn't like children when I was a child. <laughs> like, it wasn't like new. It was just, I, it was something my family, my mother used to joke that she was just like, oh, this kid is not interested in this. Um, I would never play bride or dress up. I remember my earliest games, my mother gave me like a defunct checkbook and I played business. And like, <laughs> I just didn't have that thing in me. And... Um, it was really funny. I'm, I'm engaged to be married. Um, I've been with my partner for 18 years and engaged for eight years. And um, when he proposed, I wasn't expecting it because he knows where I stand on all this. And I was, he wasn't expecting it. And when he proposed, uh, it, was, it was a little overwhelming and it was very exciting and it kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, at one point he put his hands on my shoulders and he was like, Sean, you're going to have to answer the question. And, but I thought I had, I thought I had whole, had this whole dialogue, but apparently according to him later, that all I did was make these low guttural noises. <laughs> I went, uh, 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 but in my head, <laughs> in my head, I had a whole like thing that I was saying. And I remember he reminded me at one point, he put his hands on my shoulder and said, Sean, this will be our marriage and our wedding, and if that means never actually getting married, know that I will always be okay with that. And, uh, and then it was like, oh, I can marry you. And uh, <laughs> it all works out. And 
so it was something that within me, I just always was naturally knew that it just, there was something else I was called to. Um, but the world definitely pushed back, especially around having children. That was very, in, very interesting for me at a very early age. It was just something I knew that wasn't going to happen. But it's very interesting because when I was young, I always knew I would have a child, and I always knew uh, that her name would be Ruby. And I used to write um, uh, poetry, very dense, dark poetry. Um, <laughs> And Ruby was like this alter ego character, and then I would write short stories, and it was Ruby. And every boyfriend I had, it was going to be like, you know, you know, Ruby Lubell, Ruby Ray. Every I let <laughs> them know that I'm having this child, her name is Ruby. And uh, then when I met my partner 18 years ago, we were out to dinner, and he said, you know, he has three children, Sophie, Ruby, and Clyde. And when he said Ruby, I remember thinking like, oh, I guess we're not going to be together because I'm supposed to have a child named Ruby. Even though I didn't want children, I just knew that this was going to happen. And then I met Ruby, and I was like, oh, I'm not having children. This is the child that I'm supposed to, supposed to raise oh and supposed God. to guide. And she knows this story. And if she was here, she would be, like, crying. And <laughs> On her 21st birthday, I gave her the last uh, story that I had ever written about Ruby, the last little poem. Oh. And it is her to a T. This child is the child that I had been channeling all those years. And so I knew I had an obligation that this was, this was the family that I was going to be raising. So I have been in relationship with family and I have been raising children, just not biologically. And um, I always say that everyone should have a non-biological parent who's not completely like out of their minds raising <laughs> your child because I have watched those kids lie right to their father. They will lie right to their mother, but they don't lie to me. And the reason is they love me differently. They desperately need the approval of their parents in a different way. With me, they don't need their approval in the same way. So therefore, I get to cater to them and their hearts um, and help to mentor and support in a very different way. And I remember the first time Ruby lied to me. There was a part of me that I went to Al. I'm like, she loves me. <laughs> like, I don't know how to manage this new role that I've just stepped into. Um, but it definitely, she saw me now as a different kind of a parent. And so, uh, yeah, so that was my, uh, you know, I, I navigated the whole, like, projection and all that stuff. And you'll never know love if you don't have children. And you'll never know what it is to be a woman if you, you don't know, have everybody children. Everybody seems to know everything. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with this. You know, I feel really confident in my femininity because I've always known, or not always, but as soon as I began to teach yoga and began to um, connect with my own artistry, it was very clear to me what my purpose was and that my purpose, if I was a parent, the world would stop. I know my nature, it would be 100% focused on their survival and that's not what I was called to do. Yeah, and then you wouldn't have been able to do all this amazing stuff you've done for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you teach that conviction to people? Like, for instance, it is really hard for people to check in and truly know what it is they want on two sides, whether it be the traditional, like, you just assume you have to go with the flow and what everyone says, or what if you're just naturally defiant, so you're automatically not going with the flow, though maybe the more traditional thing is what should be right for you. Like, how do you teach people to, like, connect and understand and hear and feel mm -hmm. it? I, I don't know if it's something that you... You can necessarily, um, well, you can teach it in a way. Um, it makes me think of, of Mona, who's a, a dear old friend who's passed. But uh, one of the things that Mona, who's a teacher of mine, uh, instrumental, really helped me learn how to um, connect 
to the darker parts of my nature and integrate them without any shame and to take ownership of the human experience, both the light and the dark, and to uh, honor it and, and be fully like engaged with it. Um, I just got so excited talking about Mona that I just lost track of what I was with the... But you know, but you were on it, teaching people how to actually oh, yes. kind of... What Mona taught me, I would think would be the most important thing is um, self-confidence how to reframe your narratives and call your power back and develop the self-confidence necessary and why this is important because without good self-esteem, you will never trust your intuition. You will second-guess yourself so like this. You will ask everyone in the world what you should do, think, or feel. But the moment you have that self-confidence, and it doesn't mean that you... Um, that you shame the bad stuff. It's like, it's like looking at whatever you might perceive as bad and saying, okay, what was the lesson here? What was the purposefulness of this moment? Shifting the perspective. You know, it's not like, why did this happen? It's like, well, rather not why did this happen to me, but why has this happened for me? And the moment we can, be, can, be, can, be, we can begin to reframe it, we develop that self-confidence. And when I was able to, boom, boom, boom. I may not like the guidance that comes through, but I know in my soul that that is the direction I'm being invited to move, and there's no place in my body that rejects that knowing. I might be like kicking a can, you know, like, like fuck, um, but nonetheless, I'm going. But if I didn't have that self-confidence, it's impossible to trust that intuition. It is true. Confidence is everything. On a more simple note, I have so many friends that are moms now because I'm a mom, and always the stories of like, oh my God, I was so mom-shamed, and I was mom-shamed, and my response always is, you're only mom-shamed if you think it's shameful. Yeah. That's always my thing. I'm like, if you don't give a shit, then you're not being shamed. Who cares? Yeah. And they always look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, mm -hmm. they can only shame you if you think it's shameful. Mm -hmm. but well, you're, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot yeah, on. Yeah, I was like, don't, if you know what you're doing is okay, then who, like... Mm -hmm. But our, con our culture is, is dependent upon us remaining insecure and needs us to second guess who we truly are. Because if we did, as a society, step fully into our power and know who we are, love who we are, and loved who each other are, the world would know peace, and there would be equity, and there would be justice. It couldn't go any other way than that. And the, the powers that be and the policies that are enacted need to create separation and divide on a national and global and political level. But it can't happen unless we're divided within ourselves. And how much of that do you think is conscious or subconscious? I think it's a combination of both, actually. I think it's very much within the unconscious, and it's, it's just, it's in our bodies. We inherit the, the prejudice and the, the discrimination and, and all of these biases the way that I inherited my hair and, you know, the color of my eyes. It's in our bodies, so it's so normalized that it feels right and that's this dismantling that has to happen internally. That's the hard work. And no one can do that for you. And it's the moment where you decide that when you say, like, one of my biggest pet peeves within the spiritual and yoga communities and when we, we throw out freely, we are one. Now, obviously, that is true. We are one. And on an energetic level, there is no denying that. And it's the language of the privilege to be able to say we are one without unpacking where there are differences and where those differences impact people. And it's easy to say that we're all one when I have access to resources, when I can get health care, when I can walk down the street with my partner without worrying about that I'm going to get beat up or humiliated or shamed. Um, but what about all those people out in the world who do not have 
those privileges. Therefore, for me to truly live in that idea of oneness, I have to recognize within myself, where do I participate in that separation? Where do I benefit in that separation? And where am I complicit? Once I have the, the bravery to answer those questions, then peace is possible. And how, on that note exactly, how can someone go in, if it's really, like you said, you can inherit it, it can be part of your DNA, how do you unpack that? I mean, I think we could all say, how do I participate? And you'd be like, I don't. So how do you like really dig in and unpack that, right. where you know what your part of the whole equation is? I mean, it, it depends on the circumstances, of course, but it's, it's just really a, accountability. You know, as a white woman of privilege, I have to pay attention to the ways in which I move through this world more effortlessly, effortlessly, effortlessly. Than that was not effortlessly. No, no, that was very challenging. <laughs> than others because perhaps of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic circumstance or their religion or their sexuality. I've got to be aware that we're all not equal and that... I get these privileges based on nothing other than the luck of the draw and the culture in which I've, the, the white dominant culture in which I've been a part of. The onus then is on me. If I'm out in the world saying, I want harmony and peace and equity and justice for all, that's just rhetoric unless I, I step back, see the positionality that I have and say like, huh, where do I actually contribute to the suffering of others? Even if I don't intend to, where does it show up and pay attention, pay attention to my languaging, pay attention to my engagement. Suddenly when you start to wake up that way, it's very uncomfortable because you realize it's everywhere. Yeah. Racism, sexism, homophobia. Um, it makes me crazy in the yoga community. I hear it all the time. I'm not racist, I don't see color. That's a huge problem actually. Um, or I'm not homophobic, I'm not transphobic. If you are a, like myself, a white person of privilege, there's no way you're not any one of those things because your grandparents wear and their grandparents wear and on and on and on and it lives within our body. And in our rational mind, we might not believe it. But put any one of us in a situation where we're triggered, where our rational brain turns off and the primal brain turns on, watch what fear, what information comes through and all the little microaggressions that come out uh, you know, uh, every single day that actually hurts and creates more harm and divides. And so for me, if I'm committed to yoga and committed to this oneness, then I have to be accountable for the ways in which I participate in the very thing that I think I'm gonna, I want to say, I want to change. So my work and, and my roundabout way to answer your question is, I can't tell anyone or teach them how to evolve in this capacity, but what I can do is model the struggle and the messiness of it the commitment that I have to it and offer the tools that sometimes kind of help me and have worked when I actually use them. And hope that if more and more of us were committed to doing the deep inner work, then like I said earlier, peace is the inevitable outcome. What things have surprised you that have come up for you that your rational mind, like you were saying, you're like, I'm not racist, I'm not this, that all of a sudden you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah. Um, it's Excuse my language. It's a story that I, I, I actually write about in, in my book. I just wrote, just finished the book. And it's one of the stories, and I did not want to share this story. I hated sharing this story because 
the book takes you on this trajectory of, uh, of, of personal growth and then looking from the inside to the outside and all the ways in which as we want to change the world, um, the shadow still exists. And I wrote the story and then decided not to put the story in and I went back and forth because the story didn't happen that long ago. And so it was, it's easy for me to tell unconscious stories from 20 years ago, but this wasn't that long. Right. And, and it's a powerful one because I'm in Atlanta and I had just gotten done teaching a, um, some benefit event and I had a little bit of time to kill before I had to go to um, the airport. And so I saw that the Martin Luther King um, Memorial and Church was fairly close to the hotel walking distance. And so I decided to go and, you know, to get myself pumped up for it. I'm listening to uh, his last speech, you know, um, uh, you know, in my, it wasn't a Walkman, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> but, you know, I'm Your listening iPod. to, the, yeah, iPod. I'm listening <laughs> to the speech. And kind of aware that the environment, the, the, where I was walking was a little sketchy, you know, the, the buildings were boarded up. And um, I can see there was a lot of homeless people on the streets. But, you know, I'm not really taking it in. I'm more listening. I get to a corner, and there's a woman standing on the corner, a woman of color, and uh, she catches my eye, and uh, uh, we smile at each other. And she has a, a child with her, and the child is staring at me. And I smile at the child, and as they walk away, the kid is still looking at me like this. And all of a sudden, I look around me, and I realize I'm the only white person in the neighborhood, uh, in that immediate part of the neighborhood. And like I noticed right away in my body, like just an odd little tension, like, oh. And just kind of took a breath into that. Like, oh, that was weird. And I had to go into this underpass, like underneath this uh, bridge. And as I'm going into the underpass, you know, I'm, that's just scary, you know, just anyway, it's dark, yeah. it's dank, you know, so I'm a little anxious about it, but it's the only way I can get to where I'm going. And as I get halfway through, I notice a group of boys coming in on the other side, and they're young boys, and they're black boys, and I look over my shoulder, and I realize that I'm alone, and I notice, now I'm tracking the sensations in my body, because that's part of the work that I do, um, and I'm noticing that I'm scared. Now, as a, uh, of course, as a woman walking alone, there's a thousand reasons one should be, but it was more than that. And as they got closer to me, I had my engagement ring on, um, and I had turned the diamond so it faced the inside of my palm very subtly, because I was fairly convinced that I was either going to get robbed or raped. And uh, the boys passed me, they don't even pay me any mind, you know, and I dropped my head just kind of in shame, very well aware that the, the, it wasn't just the fact that they were boys, men, actually young men, that scared me. It was because of the color of their skin and that my body was so, still conditioned to believe that boy, men like that are going to hurt or harm me. And I'm, and I'm aware of the irony. I'm on the way to Martin Luther King Church and <laughs> Memorial to pay my respects and in that moment completely confronted by my own internalized racism and that, and I wondered if they were white boys, would I have still been scared? Maybe depends on how they, they were dressed. If these men oh, were were dressed differently, would I have been scared? They were wearing hoodies, you know. Like again, all the external evidence that the world indoctrinates within us came up in that very primal moment. So I I contemplated this 
and really decided, well, like, if I'm going to go and pay my respects to Martin Luther King, I'm going to really unpack what's just happened here for me and where I've learned this. So I go to the church, I pay my respects, all sorts of, you know, interesting insights happen, and I come back, and I have to go back through that tunnel. And I go through the tunnel, and on the other, right on the corner of the tunnel, there's another group of, of black young men um, hanging out, and I track my body once again. I feel a little anxiety. As I get closer, I notice maybe 10 feet from them uh, four white boys wearing, like, cargo pants and button-up shirts, you know? And I noticed in my body an exhale that if I can just get to those white boys, I'll be okay. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I'm simultaneously observing my racism while I am also in shock at how deep this is and how incongruent this is with my own belief system. But in my mind, it's like, just keep paying attention. I think again of Mona, it's just like, you know, better out than in. Don't suppress this, don't hide this, just be present to what is that truth. So I passed the, the, the black men. They don't even, one of the men actually stepped out of the way as I, as, I, as I passed through. I get to the white boys. They surround me, and they start to harass me. And my nervous system wasn't prepared for it. My nervous system was like, wait a second. The, the, these are my people. My, they're not supposed to do this. So because it was traumatic, I dissociate. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of the situation. Well, one of the, the black men on the corner comes up, sees that I'm being harassed, and s at, comes right in and says, hey, are you okay? And I just shake my head, no. And there's some words spoken, and the, the white boys disperse, and he asks me if, I can, if he can walk me back to my hotel. And he walks me back no. to my hotel. And in that conversation, he tells me that uh, that the white boys are from uh, the, the university nearby, that they come to the neighborhood often to buy drugs, that he's also from that, that university uh, um, working to become uh, a public defender, mm. and that uh, it makes him crazy when he sees people being harassed in any capacity. And I remember him telling me that uh, his mom would tell him all the time to, that he needs to mind his own business, but he can't. And what it made me think, though, when I was walking down the street, when I first, when I had the earbuds on, I was listening to the speech of Martin Luther King talking about the Good Samaritan, when there's, uh, it's the story of, um, there's a man being beaten, uh, having been be beaten in the street, and I forget, it was like a priest came by and ignore, ignored him, and someone else came by and ignore, ignored him. And in the speech, he said, a man of another race comes by, gets off his beast, I guess his horse, donkey, and administers aid to this hurt man. And Martin Luther King had said, it's the good man, it's the great man who doesn't see the I and thou, something like that. So as we're walking, I think to myself, it's the good Samaritan. It's this young boy, young man, who out of nowhere it's the good man, it's the great man who doesn't put the I before the thou. And, of course, I'm seeing, like, the magic and all the, like, and I want to tell him what's happened. I want to tell him about the, the diamond ring, and I want to tell him about all my internal, internalized racism and what a miracle his presence is and the, the white boys and my people. And, and I thought, 
it's not his job to hear this, to absolve this, to validate this. He already knows that I probably had like 20 <laughs> microaggression racist moments in, in that morning. And so we just shook hands and he wished me well and I wished him well. And I remember walking away and just praying that, knowing that he was one more angel on my path and praying that he had a thousand of his own angels to guide him as he goes forward. And then I went into the hotel, called a friend, and processed the shit out of it. And that's what you do. I owned it. I thought about it. I felt it in my body. I traced it back to the ways and, and you know, where this all comes from and came to the conclusion that unpacking my uh, internalized racism really isn't the issue. The issue is to dismantle the systems within myself so that I can be responsible for dismantling the systems that exist out in the world so that we can end these injustices that continue to divide, like racism and sexism. But it can't happen until I own it within myself. And, and normalizing it. Like, this is not unique to me as a white person. It can't be. No. And, but the thing is, if we walk around saying, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I'm not homophobic, nothing will change. And so I'm very much committed to saying, actually, yeah, I am all of the above, and I'm gonna do the work on myself so that in the moment of stress, in those moments where the primal brain activates, I will breathe, resource, and make a different choice, use a different word, and then go home, and in the privacy of my own environment, process that so that the rate in which I stay in that disconnect gets shorter and shorter. You guys, I'm so excited to talk about the next Den Talks Live. It's gonna be a panel, and if you have not come to these yet, I strongly suggest that you do. You get a chance to ask your own questions, you always leave with goodies, and they're just a whole lot of fun. This next one's about sex. It's called All the Fields, Mastering Sex and Relationships. We've got three incredible people in their field, Sex with Emily, John Wyland, who just sold out two workshops back-to-back -back this weekend, and Ryan Weiss. This is going to be Saturday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. I promise you it's going to be fun. It's not going to be weird or uncomfortable. It's going to be a blast. And any questions you have, whether it be about sex, intimacy, or just that guy or girl who won't talk to you, please bring them because that's what this is about. If you're interested, and we really hope you are, please go to dentalkspodcast.com. It's such easy. There's a link there to sign up. Hopefully, we'll see you that Saturday. Hey guys, sorry for the interruption, but I just wanted to talk about this incredible opportunity. Everyone's always asking how they can do more and be part of the community. So we have this incredible chance to do it. February 16th, Valentine's Day weekend, we're going down to Skid Row with Lunch on Me, Larray Gaston's organization. She's been on the podcast, so check out that episode. And we're going to go to Skid Row, 10 a.m. to volunteer, 1 p.m. for the block party. Let's go. Let's make these people feel seen, heard, and good because that's part of the epidemic, as Lorea tells us. Please go to denmeditation.com, go to the schedule, and you can sign up for the Lunch on Me event. Hope to see you guys there. It's really going to be amazing. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing... Thank you. Because I'm sure all of us have had similar experiences, mm -hmm. and so thank you for being so honest about yeah, that. It's in the book. Was that before... <laughs> ooh, we got a little preview. Got a little preview. Um, was, was that before... I know, I think it was this past year, you did either a trip or a workshop based on racism. Race, and you had, yeah. And I think you either went places or you had people come in and talk. Race in America, yeah. Yeah, race, was that... Was this part yeah. of... 
this was after or but like was this part of the reason you feel like you I think no I, I at part of where I raised the three point five million dollars with off the mat we were doing these um, this this project called a global save a challenge and I just think again it's just like the, kind of the, the path of maturity these were really successful programs where we were inviting people to raise twenty thousand dollars and if they could I would um, bring them uh, we would focus on a different country. We did eight different countries. I would partner with five different kinds of organizations, and we would take all of that money and then divide it amongst the different organizations who were doing extraordinary work. And then the reward, if you will, is that the people who raised the money got to go to the country, got to work with the um, organizations to see how their money was being spent. And it was a very successful program. But as I started to understand more about justice and colonization and a lot of other different things. It became harder and harder for me to bring people like myself, Western people who were well-meaning, who wanted to help, and I put that in quotes, who didn't really understand the difference between charity and justice and who also didn't understand that helping without really unpacking that is still dominance and that mm. it's, um, it's still, uh, is still oppressive. I started to wake up to that and realize like, oh my God, I cannot do these trips anymore. Like, this is really problematic. And it was a really hard decision to stop because I was raising amazing amount of money and funding incredible organizations, but there was something incongruent about it. So we ended these trips and instead what we started doing are called learning and listening tours. And it started in Cuba and I've worked in South Dakota and in Alabama. Um, uh, in, in South Dakota, we worked with the, in, in the indigenous community there, um, Native American folk, who taught us about systemic oppression and the genocide and that existed and the impact that that genocide still has on the culture today. And I don't go into these environments. I certainly wouldn't go to Alabama and talk about race. But what I will do is hire people in the community who are directly impacted uh, who teach us from slavery to civil rights to progressive movements to today. I even brought someone in who was an ex-white supremacist who wrote an incredible Christian book. Christian Piccolini. Yes. We had him on here. He's incredible. I know. We love him. Mm -hmm. That's If you haven't listened to that episode, please do. He's, He's incredible. Amazing. But we couldn't have a conversation without about race without also talking about uh, white dominance. And so my job, though, is to help people embody the information because of the mind-body connection, because of the way trauma lives in the body, um, I would teach people yoga, help them to integrate it, notice when the shame came up, where the resistance came up, where the judgment, um, notice the ways in which they might want to turn to drugs or sex or alcohol or TV to avoid feeling the feelings. That was my job, was just the embodied work. But we work with people who actually are skilled. Um, and so that's our commitment. We don't make any money doing this. Um, but to me, it's that is what's appropriate for us to go in and learn, listen and learn, and basically take in what's actually happening and begin to examine within ourselves our own complicity. You talk a lot about trauma. Obviously, yeah. even in this, you want to unpack the trauma so people understand it. Um, and you, one of the things you talk a lot about, which I find so fascinating and want to know more, is how trauma can be obviously something that's more obvious, someone knows they went through trauma, but it can also be something that's more historical, something that's passed down generations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like trauma that's passed down generations, what does that mean? Is it like in your DNA? Is it something that evolves? How do you know you even have it? 
is that something, what about how much of it is from stories that are passed down and how much, how much of it is actually literally in your DNA? Um, I mean, it's very complex, the question that you're asking. What I know is Answer though, it in two minutes. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's no separation between the mind and the body, like we said earlier, that what, what, what binds us is energy. Energy is what connects us. And so there's gross energy, which is energy you can see, this mic, my body, because it moves at a resonance that's slow enough for the eye. But there's subtle energy, and subtle energy you cannot see, but you can feel. Love, for example, that's an energy. So is um, joy. But so is fear and shame and rage and guilt and grief. These are the shadow emotions that we all have, but we tend to want to deny and avoid. When we experience trauma, trauma is anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, out of control, or unable to respond. There's shock trauma. Those are those unimaginable events that happen that just pull the rug right out from underneath you. But there's also developmental trauma. These are the traumas that happen often at when we're kids, divorce, death of a loved one, bullying, for, for examples. When we have trauma, um, and also think historically, where there's there, our grandparents and they're having cultural trauma, uh, gender trauma. When trauma happens, chemicals release from the brain, they go into the body, we're put in fight, flight, freeze, or fold, the body contracts. That contraction, that moment, there's an imprint. That narrative is now in the cellular tissue. If we were raised in an environment where we can express the shame, the rage, the guilt, the grief, where we can cry and scream and use whatever language we want and discharge the energy, then the energy moves through us. But more often than not, we are not raised, nor were our grandparents raised in environments that gave us that, that liberty. And so therefore, that rage, shame, guilt, grief stays suppressed within our cellular tissue, and it becomes that tension becomes a part of our genetic makeup. And so we, in, in the same way we inherit the bias and the prejudice and all that, we also in, inherit, um, if we're enslaved people or slave owners, Holocaust survivors or anyone from any, uh, any genocide, um, sex trafficking, prostitution, um, anywhere where there is oppression, uh, war veterans, all of that lives within us. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's more overt, but it plays out in the unconscious. And I think that it really depends on each individual how much of that karma uh, lives within, but it's something certainly to unpack. Like I can look at my own individual trauma and that's one thing. My mom and I were just talking about this because she's reading my book now and there's, uh, there's, she was saying to me on the phone today that she was reflecting on my trauma and the path that I went through it mirrors her trauma that hadn't been dealt with. And she's only, you know, more newly really responding to the trauma that she experienced, but it mirrors it. And she's really seeing that my response to my trauma would have been different had she had dealt with her own. Sure. And she recognizes that she couldn't have known that, though, at that time. You know, there was, she didn't have those skills or that opportunity. And yet she can see it like, holy shit. Your response was based on my non-response. And, uh, and it's interesting also with my mom, something uh, to, to talk about how the unconscious plays out in historical uh, ways like this. It's a long story. I'm not going to get to the whole story, but it's a very cool story um, in that my mom just recently found out that she uh, was the product of artificial insemination. My, my grandfather was not my mother's biological father. And, um, and that right now she has 17 half-brothers and sisters. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and my mother went to high school, the high school of music and art in the Bronx with one of her half-brothers for four years. And of course, I had no idea. None of them had any idea. 
And, but what we're uncovering with all this is that because artificial insemination back in the 40s would have been um, experimental and it certainly would have been secretive and especially in the Jewish community. Well, what we would find, what, we've, what we're uncovering is that this was an underground movement with two Jewish fertility doctors who were pairing Jewish, um, infertile Jewish couples with educated, good-looking, um, educated, good-looking, athletic, young Jewish men to try to repopulate the Jewish community after the Holocaust and the war. And in response to the Germans creating a master race, super Jew. <laughs> and, um, so they were using eugenics to try to um, produce in what they were hoping would be like, you know, these, you know, wonder Jews. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it's an incredible story in wow. and of itself. But when we were young, remember my mother would have had no idea about this. My parents were very young, you know. My mother used to joke, my father was super good looking, very athletic, very, very smart. But he was eh, as a, like as a parent. My mother was an incredible parent. My, it was better that my father was hands off. And my mother used to joke that she chose my father so that she could have, this is a joke, master race children, superior children. And that, now this was such a joke in my family. My father used to sign all of our uh, like Christmas holiday cards. Like we were all assigned a, a sperm number. I would have been wow. sperm number 14 billion, 12 million, blah, blah, blah. You get this, right? My mother's unconscious was being played out within the family dynamics. My mother would have had no idea that her, she would have been a sperm number and that her, she was a, an experiment to try to create these, you know, super Jews. And this is a joke in our family, and yet, is it? Was it? The body. And so we marvel at that today, marvel at what did her, what was her unconscious playing out? And also, why am I so committed to justice? What, and why do I have such issues around survival? Like, there are things that now make sense of like, oh, this was within the, 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 the trauma, within the, the family dynamics, the secret. I'm the secret keeper of my family. I'm the secret keeper with everybody. My mother's entire birth was a secret. And so to me, it's like, no, this historical trauma runs deep and it is real. That's so interesting because it's funny because I know that story. You've told me that story. And I was going to ask you about it for that reason also because I was thinking even people who are adopted, like what's the trauma? Is it subconscious from maybe a lineage they might not know or is it from stories they've heard from the family that's adopted them or both? Like what the hell? We're screwing up, you know. But it, is it, to me, it's like it's all fodder for our evolution. It doesn't right. matter what the storyline is. It doesn't matter that my, you know, if, if my mother hadn't been the product of artificial insemination, it would have been something else that was part of her process to grow and evolve and to love and to forgive and to heal. It's one thing or another. I love that it's all fodder for evolution. I love that statement because really then you could look at almost everything that's happening to you in your life, everything bad. It's such a great way for people to reframe how they look at things. But not with bypass. My friend has a great saying, you can't get to the bless you until you go through the fuck you. <laughs> and in the spiritual communities, I have a big issue with that. We tend to want to go right to the bless you to see, you know, why things have happened as they have and to put value and meaning on something without actually letting yourself go to the animal, that rage, shame, guilt, and grief. Because if you don't, it'll find another way. 
you know, it'll find a passive aggressive way just to slaughter your soul. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so what's the balance though? Because I think this is a trick of processing it, not not doing the bypass, being in it, and then sitting in it. What is the the versus the, like sitting in it, like people who don't ever get out of that and then uh -huh. just sit kind of in the negative. Do you know what I mean? Again, Does that make sense? That's their path. That that's my hope is that people can utilize the tools that are available, whether it's online or in class, whether it's meditation or yoga or prayer or church or temples, whatever it might be, that's going to give you a pathway and some guidance so that you do not get stuck in that story because it's addictive. Yeah. Um, bitterness is addictive. Uh, rage is addictive. And why is it addictive? That contraction feels safe. That moment where there's the trauma and my body contracts, it's survival. I don't know what's on the other side of that release. My nervous system tells me death. It tells me pain. It tells me suffering. That's not the truth. It's liberation. But I have no evidence of that in my body. So people who stay stuck in that, my, I have an enormous amount of compassion because it's the child in them that only knows that, um, that example as safety. My hope is that they can trust that really messy, uncomfortable space between the contraction and the release where you, it's, in the book I, I refer to it, it's like, you know what, the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. Before it becomes the butterfly, there's this stage called pupa, <laughs> <laughs> which is the emulsification pro process where everything disintegrates into itself. I can't imagine that that's comfortable. <laughs> and I also don't know if that caterpillar is like, oh no, this is fine because and when it's over, I'm gonna be glorious. I don't know if the they caterpillar is just like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I like to think that we're in that pupa stage very often, and the only way to get to the other side of that is through guidance, support, community, and faith. And no one can really do it for you. You can model it, and you can sit with that person, but everyone's got their own trajectory. And so some people are addicted to the sensation of that contraction because their body reads that as secure. And my heart goes out because I know if they don't have that, they'll have alcohol, they'll have drugs, right. they'll have some other substance so they don't, don't have to feel because feelings have never been safe. And so it's with that person, with the right guidance, it's giving them that space to be in the big feelings, knowing that what's on the other side of that is freedom. I mean, that's an amazing way to lead into your four yous because I want to get to your four, qu your four questions. So, yeah, so it's just four quick takeaways for the audience. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Um, first thing I do when I wake up is, oh, first thing I do when I wake up, besides love my dog up and thank <laughs> God that I have this animal in my life, um, I make myself tea and I uh, read the news and I find out what awful thing is happening in the world and it takes all of about... 30 seconds, and I, 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 I let that in, and then I either meditate or I roll out my yoga mat, and I practice, and why I read the news or watch the news first is because when I get on my mat, I dedicate every movement and every breath to whatever that situation or circumstance was. I don't try to pretend that bad things aren't going on in the world, and instead, I use my body from that point forward to pray. I know that energy comes in me, energy comes out of me, so I try to direct my energy towards that circumstance and be of service and make that an act or 
it's a form of activism that doesn't cost any more money, doesn't take any more time. Um, and I know that I'm participating and staying aware of these realities that exist. Um, sometimes those prayers are directed towards someone I love, someone who needs healing, someone I need to forgive. More often than not, though, it's a global circumstance. And then I'm praying also for me to not go to sleep, to stay present to the realities of the world and to contribute to social change from the inside out. So that's really kind of my morning ritual, whether it's 10 minutes or an hour, you know. I love that because usually you hear people be like, don't look at anything yeah, before. So yeah. I, I love that twist on it and yeah. how, and I also love the idea of it's another form of activism because mm -hmm. I think people are always looking, how can I be like yeah. become active and participate mm -hmm. and be an activist and you're actually giving a very simple, easy yeah. way to do it. That's yeah. incredible. Okay. Favorite documentary or movie? Right now it's actually Three Identical Strangers. Oh my God, it's so yeah, good. Yeah, well, because also there might, there's some evidence that one of the doctors who was a fertility doctor was on the board of the that doing that research, so there's some integration in that. It seems uh, very similar, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Three Identical Strangers, watch it. I think it's on on the 27th on CNN. I'm doing a plug. I know. CNN. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's because of what's going on within my own family. I'm very curious about the research that was being done around separating twins and triplets and the trauma that they all experienced as a result of this separation and the lack of um, when you put science in front of humanity and uh, what, you know, the impact that that has on the children. You know. It is fascinating. And actually, a lot of what you're right, a lot of what you talked about with trauma does play out in that documentary. Yeah. It's, it's, everyone should see it. It's really incredible. Thank Just you. the fact that there's three siblings who found each other in the yeah. most random way. Yeah. Well, not random. I know you saw her yeah, face. Yeah. <laughs> to uncover yeah. something really incredible that people have mm -hmm. to talk about. That's, what's your current obsession? My current obsession? My dog. <laughs> <laughs> I am completely obsessed. I've never had a dog before. I've only had cats. And anyone who really knows me knows that I am, my cats are everything to me. And <laughs> I would just like, kind of turn my head, at, you know. It's true. Yeah, you know, dogs, like <laughs> needy. And, and now I have my Charlie, and I don't want to work. I don't want to travel. <laughs> I don't want to do anything. It's just weird. He's got human eyes, and I lay on him. The same way I laid on my cats, but I'm still trying to, like, it's just kind of weird. <laughs> I talk to him how much I love him, and I kiss him on his very human lips. And he looks at me with these very human eyes. And I'm not sure how to relate to this almost dog-like human thing. <laughs> <laughs> and feeling just like I've, I'm so in love, so obsessed. Um, yeah, I don't want to do anything else in the world except just love this animal. It was hard leaving the house knowing that I had, he was going to be alone for about an hour. And when I come home, he will act like he hasn't seen me for six years. By the way, this goes back to you saying why it was good you didn't have kids. <laughs> I mean, it's true. You would be a mess. Completely. Al says that all the time, too. Yes. And I know that I would have the dumbest children. They'd be well-loved. I would just kiss them. Kiss them. And, like, touch things. But I would give them no other stimulation in the world. So, yeah. They'd be loved, but dumb. <laughs> What's a food, drink, or object you cannot live without? Um, uh, Fortune Delight tea. Is it? It's, I, I don't get addicted to things. Like I'm pretty like you know whatever it is, I can you know take it or leave it. But I have a tea that I have been drinking for about 25 years now, pretty obsessively. At least five. It's in my mug right here. At least five uh, cups a day. There's no caffeine. It's called Fortune Delight. It's cinnamon, ylang um, ylang, chrysanthemums. It's uh, an antioxidant. 
Uh, it's very purifying. It's very grounding for me because of all the work I do. Everything I do has to, like, pull energy down. Otherwise, I can get really out in the ethers. And so staying rooted is really important for me. And this tea, for whatever reason, like, I just realized today that I, I ran out. I only have a couple packs left. And I asked Jessica, who works with me, like, overnight this <laughs> tea because the world will end. And uh, so they should be here tomorrow and everything will be right again. <laughs> I'm obsessed with tea too, so I get it. Yeah. How, I mean, and those are your four years, which are incredible, but one last thing, if you had one piece of advice to give people, mm -hmm. what would it be? Um, it's all, this is also in my book. Um, it's a, there's a, a longer story that goes with it, but it was advice that my dad gave uh, right before he died um, to me, which was... Um, uh, let me get the order correct. Um, love big, forgive always, do good, and don't be an asshole. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very simple and pretty amazing. It's pretty much all there is. You know, love big, forgive always, do good, and don't be an asshole. And so, like, that's kind of my mantra. And I try I like to... you've done all of that. No, I'm an asshole. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Is that your Achilles heel, Jersey asshole? Totally, you know? <laughs> but... You know, I'm again. It's just, it's just the work you do, and you know, I I take accountability for it, and I try to decrease my assholeness each and every What's day. What's your most recent assholeness? I would say that the only person who gets that Al. part of me is going to be my partner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If he was sitting here, he would totally deny it because he hates when I say that. But I know, like you know, I know, and uh, it's daily. It's just in the most subtle, passive-aggressive, brilliant <laughs> ways, just undermining. She's human. <laughs> yeah. But he probably gets it more than anyone. No one else is really going to get that, only because, except for the work I do in the world, I'm super introverted, so I'm alone a lot, except for Jessica. Um, so <laughs> I take myself out of the opportunities that I have to be an <laughs> asshole uh, by staying home and hiding. And so <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> if I was out more, I would probably have more evidence of, you know, in a, that kind of behavior. Um, so I, I, Al, Al gets the brunt of it. So now we know how not to be an asshole. Don't yes, go anywhere. Just don't go anywhere. <laughs> That's the home. best piece of advice right there. Uh -huh. Thank you so much. Uh -huh. I mean, this was so much fun for me. And I know I can tell everyone else enjoyed it and got uh -huh. so much out of it. You're incredible. She's still going to do yeah. her personal practice, which will be great. And there is a Q&A afterwards. And I just love you. And I know I can speak for so many people. This was really inspiring. Thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. No, thank so you. So let me, uh, let me, I'll take you through, um, what, I, what I'm going to do that's relevant to this, I'm going to take you through a meditation. I'm also going to then close it with a prayer. And I think maybe if there's space afterwards for a little Q&A. Um, but go ahead and sit up tall. And, um, you know, for those of you at home who are listening also, you know, just make sure your environment is conducive for a moment. Maybe just... You know, lock the kids uh, in another room, turn down the lights, um, do what you got to do, but just take a moment for yourself and um, sitting tall and really feeling your roots, feeling your connection to the earth beneath you. Take a deep breath in. Exhale it out through the mouth. And, and first just take a moment just to notice just like how you feel in your body, you know, and, and and just ask yourself this question, like, how are you? Like, how's life? How's your family? How's your body? Your health? Just where are you at in the world right now without any judgment attached to it, thinking it's either good or bad, right or wrong? Just take that moment just to acknowledge, like, yeah, right now things are great, feeling good, in my process, 
got my tools. But maybe right now in your life, you might just, just be a little just, just off your game. Your diet's a little off. Maybe you're using drugs or alcohol, recreational drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, to avoid actually feeling some of the feelings that you know need to get excavated, or food, maybe. Just take that moment just to check in. Relax any tension in your shoulders, your mouth, your jaw. And then bring your awareness down to the very base of your spine, to the muladhara chakra. The color is red and the element is earth. This chakra is about home, safety, family, boundaries, security. It's our foundation. It's what roots us in the here and in the now. And there are so many ways in which our roots, our foundation, become fractured, trauma, ancestral, cultural, historical, belief systems. But know that you are here now and that you've been called to do the inner work necessary so that we can all collectively participate in creating the necessary social change that will ease this world into peace. Know that your presence is essential, as it is. So feel that connection with the earth and the way in which it nurtures and nourishes and sustains, invites. And then bring your awareness to the lower part of your abdomen. It's called the Svadhisthana Chakra, and its color is orange. The element is water. This chakra is about movement and pleasure and need, desire, impulse, sexuality, and emotions. Allow that space to be expansive and fluid. Honor its magic, its mystery, fertility, creativity, manifestation. And then bring your awareness to the lower part of or rather to your solar plexus, right above your navel. This is called the Manapura Chakra. The color here is yellow and the element is fire, for this chakra is about transformation, activation, individual, individuation. It's the magnetic core of our ego. And it's the place within our body where we house our self and our soul. Know that when we have a strong sense of personal spiritual identity, we never have to look outside of ourselves for validation or definition. We know who we are. And it is that self-confidence that can open us to trust. Bring your awareness to your heart. The Anahata Chakra. The color is green. Allow the space to expand. Love, compassion, forgiveness. But because within our consciousness, we hold both the shadow and the light, it is also where we hold bitterness and resentment, the inability to forgive. May the space expand. May we love bigger than we ever imagined possible. May we forgive always ourselves and each other and be willing to see the bigger picture. Bring your awareness to the throat, the Vasudha Chakra. The color is green, the element is sound, communication, self-expression, the power of choice. When our heads and our hearts are congruent, the words we speak will reflect that knowing. May our words always be strong but sweet, 
May they inspire growth and change. May they heal. May they soothe. May they inspire wonder. As you ground down, lengthen the spine. Keep your eyes closed, but turn your eyeballs straight up to the Ajna chakra in the center of your brow. The color is indigo, and the element is light. Intuition, imagination, visions, and dreams. May we see beyond reason. May we trust that inner knowing and allow for that guidance to move us forward on our path in full faith. And then bring your attention to the very top of the head, the Sahasrara chakra. The color is violet. The element is consciousness or thought. Let it expand. For this is the space within us where we warehouse our dreams and our prophetic thoughts and where we develop a rapport with the divine that's far beyond ordinary human consciousness. Everything that we need to know is within. The answers to all of our prayers are within. And our work is to call our power back, remember who we are, trust our intuition, and allow that guidance to move us forward on our path forevermore in full faith. So let's take a moment to sit in the magic of being, knowing that you are here now, doing the essential work so that we can wake up and move through this world, integrated and whole, loving ourselves and each other forevermore as the one we are, as the God we've always been, and as the light we will forevermore be.
Calling in the God of our own unique understanding, be it your higher power, or the creative consciousness, Mother Earth, or the Holy Mother herself, to this grace we ask. May our practice from this point forward be an opportunity for healing and remembering and awakening to occur, body, mind, and spirit. May we let go of everything that we think we know and instead have the willingness to step into that sacred space directly behind our eyes, letting go of human interpretation. May we continually embrace divine perception, which is infinite and limitless. May we transform our resistance into compassion and understanding. May we shift our fear into faith. And may faith be the quality of our beingness that continually moves us forward on our path. We ask, as we do our work, and as we wake up, may we be used in some capacity so that we can, both individually and together, create a world that is free and fair and just and equal and safe and happy, healthy, abundant, peace-filled and loving for all beings everywhere. May we recognize our complicity in the, in the areas in which we create separation. May we recognize we, the ways in which we participate in that separation. And may we work diligently in order to heal that divide. We give thanks always and forevermore for our life, for our breath, for the magic of being. And we ask, may we never take a moment of this experience for granted and instead live in awe, live in wonder for the mystery and for the magic of it all. And then together we offer this blessing of gratitude and this intention to continue doing the inner work with one single om. Take a deep breath in. into your chest, open your eyes, and inhale, come up. Thank you all so much. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.